it turns out that if you look at financial history, that booms and busts are one of the most pervasive uh, uh, characteristics of civilized uh, economies. They don't happen in primitive economies. They happen in, in, in economies that have credit. You, you discover that, again, these things are recurrent back uh, not hundreds, but thousands of years. Welcome back to The Empire's New Clothes. This is the show where we discuss the forces that make and break empires. I'm your host, Bradford MacArthur. Just a little shout out, we have got podcasts and YouTube and Facebook video versions of all these episodes. So if you're on one, I want you to know that the others exist so you can check them out. And whatever platform you're on, make sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review. That's the best way to help us get this out to the most people so we can keep doing this every week. So we're about to speak with Dan Oliver. He's the founder and managing partner of Murmurcon Capital. They focus most on precious metals, specifically in gold miner. But the reason we're going to speak with Dan today is he has this fantastic understanding of economic history, something so underutilized these days. Dan's going to share some stories from centuries ago, and then we're going to overlay the lessons we've learned looking at historic credit bubbles and bus, and then bring that on to the day. It's a really great conversation. Hope you enjoy it too. Dan, well, thank you for coming on with us today. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, it's much appreciated. I'm very excited to hear some of your um, your history in finance and gold mining, and also you are quite the economic historian. In a sense, I would say you've you've done so much research, and it seems to really feed a lot of your framework and how you approach uh, investments. And so. Maybe if you could give us a little bit of background on what initially got you interested in in finance and investment and this crazy world of monetary. <laughs> yeah, well, sure. I mean, as many thinkers have said, the further back in the history you look, the, uh, the further forward in the future you can see. In fact, on my website, I, I started Ecclesiastics, which is there's nothing new under the sun. What what got me interested originally in the gold space, It's I think it's a fun story. It, uh, through 2008, I was a Warren Buffett Milton Friedman guy in gold, right? It has no utility. You can't do anything with it. Uh, uh, much better ways to mm-hmm. organize um, money and credit. Uh, when I was in Columbia Law School, I was assigned to researching the fabric industry of the 19-teens, which I knew nothing about. People didn't buy huh. ready-made clothes. They were going by patterns, stick it on fabric, cut it out, and, and, and make, knit their own clothes. And you buy these things in catalogs. And as I started researching the primary sources for that, this is 1918, I started reading articles about catalogs saying things like, uh, in, in 20 years, there'll be no more retail stores. Everyone will have a catalog. Now, this was 1999, and I was reading the Wall Street Journal that in 20 years, there'll be no more retail stores because everyone will be on the Internet. I thought, that, that, that's very interesting. Or, or articles, you know, Sam's hardware store I thought it was too small to have a catalog, but we sure to make it do it. Uh, same thing, you know, Bob's Harvester Store is too small of an internet site, but, but you know, he, he can have one now. So the articles were exactly the same. And what happened was, and I didn't notice the time, I found out later, but uh, the, the, the Fed had printed the money to fight World War I. And all that money had gone into the market, and especially into the new technology, which was catalogs. Catalog stocks went absolutely crazy. And then when the Fed pulled its horns in in 1921 because of all the inflation in the market, uh, uh, the, the catalog industry crashed. And, and in fact, mm. Sears only survived because the founders put put money back into the company. And then, of course, Sears did, did very well over the ensuing decades. And so I, I formed a thesis in, to, in 1999, the same thing would happen, that that the, the internet bubble would, would pop. And then if you, if you actually invested 
at the catalog companies at the bottom of 21, you did better than you did buying them in the spec, you know, in the spec uh, period of the teens. And of course, you had to have your timing perfectly to get the speculation right. Whereas in 1921, uh, anywhere near the bottom, you made a fortune. Uh, I, I was in law school. I didn't take advantage of the situation. The exact same that that story played out, of course. Uh, and and so I had that in my mind when 2008 happened. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I wonder if I can find a historical analogy to what I was living through. I was doing the commodities down in, in, I was living in Buenos Aires doing commodity investments. And of course, they all went to zero and all the opportunities dried up for a period of time after a huge run in in, in 2006, 2007, and 2008, the first part of of 08. And and so I started looking, and of course, I found not just one example, there are hundreds of them. (laughs) It turns out that if you look at financial history, that booms and busts are one of the most pervasive uh, uh, characteristics of civilized uh, economies. They don't happen in primitive economies. They happen in, in, in economies that have credit. And and I found all kinds of books written in the 30s referencing previous crashes and depressions, which I'd never heard of in the 19th century. Uh, and if you went back to, back to those books and read books in the 19th century about booms and busts, which I did because I had lots of time in my hand after all the commodity investments blew up uh, in, in 08, uh, in, 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 you discover that, again, these things are recurrent back uh, not hundreds but thousands of years. And what was interesting to me, um, which I've tried to capture in my own writings and the own book I'm, book mm-hmm. I'm trying to buy, uh, right, sorry, um, is that through the early, through the late 19th century, through basically 1900, uh, economics was taught as a humanity. It was a story of man and his environment. And so reading what had happened in Rome or Greece or, or the ancient world made sense because human nature doesn't change. So you could learn from that. Mm-hmm. And then really beginning in the, in the 1880s and 90s, but didn't become prevalent until the 1920s when you have Erding Fisher and, and Keynes taking over, uh, uh, economics became a science. And the idea was if you had enough data, if, if you just could, could capture uh, uh, human action in a model well enough, uh, then you could control and predict and manage the economy. And, of course, there were lots of uh, economists, academic-slash-politician economists in, after 2008 that said if only our models were better, if only we had more data, uh, we could manage this and not have these booms and busts. And so basically it, it moved from a humanity, which was proper, which it should be, which it is, into this, this pseudoscience involving data, which it is not. Mm. And, and that has been the, the biggest disconnect, I think, in, 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 uh, in, academic, in the academic world. Interesting. Well, that seems to be a constant of human. It's our human nature. We want to take the messiness, the confusion, the complexity of humanity and transform it into a very sanitized and simple and mathematical output model. And no, so that, that's it right. seems like I, a perfect example where it doesn't work that, very well. Said, uh, the economic cycles were, were, were like um, airplane crashes and not like hurricanes. And, and with enough technical ability and, and enough, uh, this is back in the 60s, uh, mm-hmm. enough data, we, we could solve airplane crashes and, and we could also solve uh, economic downturns. And of course, the analogy is just wholly incorrect. <laughs> um, huh. Well, do you mind taking us back a little bit into really any point in history that you might find your your favorite example of uh, the quintessential credit bubble? And walk us through a bit of the story. What are some characters involved? And, and perhaps towards the end, we can look at what are some lessons and how do we pick out some knowledge from this? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll give you actually a two. I'll, I'll give you one of the more in sure. depth. A second one as a bonus. Um, the, the first <laughs> real modern credit bubble was the Mississippi bubble in France. 
And, and uh, uh, Louis the the Fourteenth had uh, bankrupted the country. I mean, by building building Versailles, and by having lots of wars. Sorry for for those. What what year are we talking about? Uh, this would be the, the the late seventeenth century, so the sixteen eighties nineties. He died in the early eighteenth uh, uh, century, so I forget seventeen oh six, some number like that. Um, and, and he basically he, he bequeathed a debt of I forget two billion livres, and, and that was a lot of money. I think his leave was based on, on gold and silver uh, to his, his his infant heir, and the the. Uh, the, the regent wanted to declare bankruptcy. Oh, so the, the Duke Saint-Simon wanted to declare bankruptcy and to start over again. The regent didn't want to do that. And, and they, he called in his gambling partner named uh, John Law, a Scotsman. And, and Law oh, had um, a, a theory that you didn't need gold and silver to have a monetary system. You could, you could do it through, through paper promises. And, and actually, you know, the reason his system was so successful is because he was actually very, very profound. Uh, Schumpeter called him the first uh, uh, modern economist. Uh, he even mm-hmm. called Menger, the founder of the Austrian, Austrian School of Economics, called John Law uh, a, a deep thickener, the, the first guy to, to capture the liquidity theory of money. So he wasn't the fraud that history has made him out to be, but he, he, was, he, was, he did go off the rails. And so what, what he did at first was, and, and, and by the way, this story I'm going to tell you is the is the progress of every banking system that's ever been. Um, he saw that that no one trusted the the French currency because it was devalued so often to, in order to, to manage the debts. It's basically what we're doing now in, in our time. So he started mm-hmm. a private bank, um, and the regent and, and the rich some rich people in, in Paris put their gold and silver into his bank, and he issued paper promises out from the bank. And so um, and so each. Paper notes circling the economy was backed by gold. And the great thing was that because he was not a sovereign, he did not have the ability to renege on his debts. He couldn't devalue the currency. So the market preferred his currency to the, to the state currency because the state, as we know, can devalue when they want to. And he couldn't do it because he was a private entity. Um, and so the market preferred uh, his paper. The other thing he did, which, again, um, uh, I'm at, at, at odds with the rest of the Austrian school on this, of the current ones, in, in Auburn, but he, he would take commercial invoices and discount them. So let's say you're a merchant, you've sold goods to another merchant, usually not, not a customer. I mean, this, this, mm-hmm. these are supply chains. And, and, and the, your customer tells you he'll pay you in 30 days. And he's doing that because he's going to sell his product to the customer and get the money, and he needs 30 days to do that. And so all you had to wait 30 days to reward from your supplier, which was you know, silly because you, you, your, mm-hmm. your, your uh, machines were fallow, or you could take that bill on that customer and take it to the bank and the bank would discount it. So they wouldn't give you full value for it. They would discount it by the time value of money and the risk of collection, which was very, very small. Um, and, and so paper issued against these kinds of promises. Now, these are transactions that have already occurred. And the only thing left, the only risk remaining is settlement. Uh, and again, these, these are, tend to be fast moving consumer goods. So think bread or clothes, things like that. Um, and again, this worked magnificently well, and, and the French economy revived tremendously under John Law's uh, patronage. Mm-hmm. The, the problem came when he began buying the monopolies. Um, so, so the whole economy was divided up into state-run monopolies, the tobacco monopoly and the cotton monopoly. And the monopolies ran the New World, the Mississippi Territory, which is about a third of the current United States. And, and Law uh, promised uh, to he, – he bought the monopoly to the Mississippi – and he raised money in a company, a separate company from his bank, uh, to populate it. He, 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 the, the idea was to take all the poor people and beggars in France and ship them over to Mississippi and put them to work uh, developing a, a, a new country. And so he did this. And, no problem. Yeah, right. Uh, and, and then he, what he did was, and this is the interesting part, 
uh, he took he had his bank issue money to buy shares in the debt of this new company, which is sort of what the Fed does today, right? He, in other words, he invented credit not against gold and silver, not against transactions in the economy that had already occurred, but this was something about future value, saying, well, this Mississippi mm-hmm. will have that in the future, so we'll buy the shares today. And of course, what, what happened was the shares started zooming higher, and people who bought the shares at a discount made a lot of money. And then they discovered that the bank would give them loans against their shares. Well, now, again, this should be a very familiar story. So you go to the bank with your shares. You get a margin loan. You buy more shares. It sends the share price up. Now you have more collateral, so you can buy more shares. And so it became a positive feedback loop. And, and, mm-hmm. the, and the share price uh, went from about 100 leaves to about 10,000 leaves over about the three years. And all of Europe became just you know, mesmerized by this. Nothing like this had ever happened before. Uh, the two bubble was, had <laughs> happened already, but that was a different, a very short-lived, different kind of thing. So uh, noblemen would, would, would sell their homes to get money to put into John Law's bank to get his paper wow. to buy the shares. <laughs> and you can see where it's going. Uh, and, and the speculation wasn't just confined to the shares. Um, uh, all the real estate on the Rue Campenqua, where they traded these things, of course, went bananas, really having a flat on, on Wall Street, right? All of a sudden, it's worth a tremendous amount of money. Coaches going to, to France became scarce. And so the prices mm-hmm. of those went up. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, uh, you know, servants would be sent by their masters to go speculate. And then, of course, they would keep some of the games themselves and, and, and then reinvest, quote unquote, respeculate. Wow. And all of a sudden, uh, there were people with no title or no land who were, became rich. And, the, and the, the term millionaire comes from that era. Describe someone who has a lot of money but doesn't have any land and, and, and no title. And there are all sorts of amusing stories of ladies running into their cooks at the opera, dripping the jewels, <laughs> saying, what are, what are you doing here? Um, and, so, and so the price of everything levitated. And at first, like every credit bubble, uh, it, there were lots of winners and no apparent losers. Um, but of course, as all the frenetic expenditure went in the economy, people buying coaches and horses and, and, and chateaus, all sorts of things, prices started going higher. And not just the price of luxuries, that was the beginning, of course, but then the price of goods. And people got very, very unhappy. Um, and the clever started uh, withdrawing their money from John Law's bank. So you go to the bank with your paper and get your mm. gold out. And, and sneaking off to other countries to await the collapse. And, and so when the flow of bullion started going negative, that, that's when, that's not when it collapsed, but that's when the collapse became inevitable because, of course, the whole thing relied on people using mm. more and more paper. Um, and there was uh, the Prince de Conti showed up with uh, three coaches, filled, uh, demanded them to filled with gold and, and ran off with them, and the region demanded he return two of them. And after that, people started doing it much more subtly. Uh, and all oh. kinds of, again, amusing stories, people sneaking out uh, gold and silver from, from his bank. But in any case, the, the end came, and, and uh, they banned the use of gold and silver, tried to get everyone to use paper, which, again, is a familiar uh, uh, concept wow. through, yeah. through history. Uh, and then, of course, the, the Mississippi bubble stock collapsed. Uh, everyone's, um, you know, people were wiped out. People were very unhappy. Um, and law escaped France dressed as a woman. I always picture Bernanke d- dressed in a wig, you know, hopping to some private jet going to Davos or something. It never happened, unfortunately. But I, I was looking, looking forward to that, that uh, occurrence. So, so, that, that, and so it, 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 it fell apart. And what's interesting is lots of things. But, but I think one thing to take away is uh, a generation later in the French Revolution, France has started to print money again, the, the famous assignats. It had a very similar outcome. And, and there were debates in the National Assembly of people saying, uh, people whose fortunes, family fortunes, have been wiped out by John Law's experiment. Um, and they did it again anyway. Uh, and th- that was an extraordinary thing. And, and the argument was, well, look, 
He was an adventurer. The king was corrupt. Now we have technical people. We have scientists. This is the age of reason in the French Revolution. Of course, it was the opposite, but that's what they thought. And so we can manage this uh, uh, so well that, um, that, that no, no problems will happen. And of course, the same thing happened, right? You print the money. Industry is, is invigorated. Everyone's rich. Everyone's happy. Then prices of goods go up. Everyone starts grumbling. And then the asset prices collapse. And then the whole, the whole thing unwinds. So that, that to me, is, is the... Is the quintessential example. And every credit bubble that's happened since then has followed a similar pattern of beginning with billion, backing your banking system and, and commercial bills and these invoices, moving to the central bank or the banks at large, doesn't need to be the central bank, buying assets, speculative assets, pushing their pricing, pr- prices up, allowing everyone else to lever up, to borrow against those assets and then to buy more assets. And then you get overcapacity and collapse. So it's, it's the quintessential story. The other one I'll share with you quickly, uh, and you can decide yeah. if it's it or not, is, uh, is uh, when I was researching my book, I came across a passage in Tacitus, the first century Roman historian, where he talks wow. about the panic of AD 33 in Rome. And uh, it's not a very long passage, but I think it's very instructive. What, it, what he writes is that because of a stringency in the money market, the Emperor Tiberius took 100 million sestari out of the imperial treasury, lent it to the banks uh, against real estate collateral at no interest for three years. Now, mm-hmm. of course, that is precisely what, what Tarp and, and what, what uh, Bernanke and Hank Paulson were up to in 2008, the exact same policy. Yeah. And it was called innovative by the financial press. It wasn't innovative. It happened 2,000 years ago. <laughs> and, and, and what's instructive about that episode is that it worked in, in ancient Rome. He did stem the, the money panic. But if you look at the silver content of the Roman coin, the denarius, it had lost about 10% of its value in the pre- previous 300 years. So basically, you know, it was completely stable, essentially. Hmm. Starting in 83.3, you, start, you, you see this, one of these logarithmic curve collapses where within the next 300 years, there's no, there's no silver content left at all. It was a tin coin with wow. silver coating on it. And so it worked so well, you know, taking money out of the imperial treasury and, and spreading it around. They kept doing it. And when they couldn't afford to do it, they just started, they didn't you know, not printing the way we do, because we have printing money, but the same thing, which is, which is devaluing their currency. And, and again, uh, we see that in, in our own time where, uh, you know, 2008 was a watershed event where the Fed realized you could print as much money as it wanted to, and no one complained too much. And the pace of printing has only accelerated since then. It, it, hasn't, it hasn't gotten less. And of course, in an ancient economy, your capital turnover was once a year at harvest. And so things took a long time to progress. In our economy, uh, things turn over, capital turns over you know, every, every month in an industrial setting, every, every second in an information setting. So th- these things play out much, much, much faster. Mm-hmm. A question that struck me when you're telling the story about the Mississippi bubble is what, what fascinating financial technology for sure. And if that is the basic framework of a modern day credit bubble, credit burst, that whole process. I wonder what is the incentive for John Law and these folks to do what they did? And and my question to you is, and maybe we can't even split it into two sections here. Maybe they're inextricably tied, but is it, is it humanity's fascination with new technology and new things? And and it's like, how far can we push the system? What new financial technologies can we create right now? Or is it simply greed of, you know what? Everyone around me is making a bunch of money. It seems obvious I should sell my estate and buy shares in in this uh, corporation. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's both is, is the answer. John Law, like Bernanke, was a true believer. He did not think he was a swindler. He's been described as yeah. that because of what happened. I think that's a really important point. Yeah, but he, he believed it. I mean, and, and, and in a sense, he was right, right? In, in a sense, running around using gold coins is incredibly inefficient. And so why not have a more efficient mm-hmm. way of doing it, which is you deposit the bank and the bank gives you representation of that gold, which is perfectly uniform. Like gold coins, they wear out and people chip them and they clip them. Uh, uh, and paper doesn't. So that that was that was correct. And uh, in, in my view, the the decision to monetize commercial bills was also correct. And you see that in healthy bank systems. What where he went wrong was with when his ambition took over. And instead of responding to the market by adding liquidity to the market, he decided to he was going to direct where capital went into which assets they they flowed. And that was mm-hmm. the error. So I, I think the people who, who design these things. May have good intentions, um, but the of course, the, as you said, then people, uh, the bystanders get sucked into it. And of course, to, to what your comment, the most famous example of this is probably uh, uh, Isaac Newton, who made money in the South Sea bubble, got out, knew it was overpriced, saw all his idiot friends making more money than he had, and then jumped right back into the top because he just couldn't resist <laughs> it and lost everything. And apparently, he, oh, he, no. he wouldn't allow the subject to be, to be to, you know, discussed near him the rest of his life. And and so the, so it's, it's it's really both. I mean, it's really 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 tough. Do that. I remember watching uh, uh, Jim Grant interviews in '97, '98. Said the internet bubble had, had had gone too far. Well, he was right, of course. But gosh, it was tough to be him for the next two years and and told that he was old yeah. fashioned, didn't understand the market, blah, blah, blah. and for the next two years as he went vertical. I mean, of course, he's correct, but but it's that's tough to to do that. Very tough. Most certainly. And I wonder. Let's stay with Mississippi Bubble for a mo- for a, one more moment here. If they had all the financial technology we had today, could it have bought them a few extra years or decades, or, or were they still like quite advanced, actually? Even yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and and the, and it's a great question because there are Fed papers, Fed Reserve papers, that discuss this. You can go on the Fed website and say, "Gee, it, it would have worked if only he had better technology, better management. It, it, the idea was sound." And they have to say that because the Federal yeah. Reserve System is based on the same principles. They, they can't have any other conclusion. Um, and and it, it reminds me of, of, uh, of when you look at the 1920s and look at the, start, the Dow Jones Industrial Average you know, bubble, and, and economists like Milton Friedman said there was no bubble. You know, uh, Irving Fisher, there was no bubble. This, this reflected uh, uh, gains in productivity or the housing bubble. You look at the craziness in the housing bubble. Now, anyone who knows anything about economic history or who's operating as an operator in that market knew it was a bubble. But the academics look at it and say, oh, gee, I mean, Bernanke gave tons of speeches saying, no, no, the increase in, in housing prices reflects productivity gains and, and wealth creation. Isn't it great? And yeah, no, so Absolutely. So maybe let's walk through, let's overlay that framework of a credit bubble onto our current environment today sure. and help us look at where are these forces that we've talked about? What are, what are the basic elements of a credit bubble that we can see today? Okay. So, um, so the way our system was, was designed, the Federal Reserve System was d- designed uh, 100 years ago, um, th- they were aware of the bubble making tendencies of the commercial banks. You don't need a Federal hmm. Reserve. You don't need a central bank to have a bubble. Um, the banks can do it all by themselves, a- a- as they did in the 19th century. Um, and, and again, it's very simple. As soon as the, the, the basic problem is legal tender, right? If you don't have legal tender um, and the bank finances uh, assets that they shouldn't, what happens is 
They issue currency. There's too much currency for, for existing commerce. People go to the bank and they redeem their currency for, for gold and silver. And then capital leaves the bank and they have to pull their horns in. Once you have legal tender laws, you don't need to do that um, because if, if they issue too much currency and the, and the currency values go down, instead of the hassle of going to get your gold out of the bank, which you can do in the 19th century, right? You, you just pay your taxes with it. You cheat the taxman. You cheat your creditor. So it's much easier for this to get going. You don't need a central bank. Um, and, and then the difference is the 19th century, when the bank system collapsed, uh, there was no aid for it. The, the Treasury Department always tried to help out, but the, it couldn't. And so the whole thing would collapse, which meant the bubbles couldn't get that big. And so there were many more panics, but they were relatively shallow. Uh, uh, Paul yeah. Warburg, who designed the Federal Reserve Bank, knew this. And so the whole idea was to bifurcate the credit process in the commercial banks and the money-making process in the Federal Reserve. And, and I, he had a famous line where he said, sometimes the money-making uh, uh, operation it, it doesn't always conjive with the, with the money lending operation. And so that it, it was intentionally mm-hmm. done. That. And the whole idea was that when the banks started going crazy, uh, creating credit, the Federal Reserve could rein them in by raising interest rates. Uh, and, and it worked well for about 18 months. And then World War I broke out and the Federal Reserve was told it had to finance bank debt to fight the war. And then, we, as I mentioned earlier, we had the first big giant bubble, uh, federal central bank bubble in this, in, this, in, this, uh, in this country. And then what the Fed realized its job was or became its job is it, you don't really need a Federal Reserve to create a bubble. What you do need a Federal Reserve to do is to prevent the bubble from, from collapsing. And so every time the mm-hmm. bubble tried to unwind, the Fed would run in and print money. So this happened three times in the 20s. This, this, QE is not new either. Um, uh, uh, the panic of 21 happened. Then later, the Fed, after 21, they began buying government bonds to lower interest rates to create, to juice the economy. They realized they had that power. There wasn't, there was, they, were, they didn't know they had that power until they did it. And once they discovered they did, Benjamin Strong, who ran the Fed in the 20s, thought, this is, this is a great way to manage the economy. So when the economy started roaring again, they sold their government bonds. And then, and then things slowed down again. Commodity prices fell. They bought them again. They did three rounds of that. And then he died in, in 1928. And then when the 29 panic came, it was a different group in charge of the Fed. And mm-hmm. they realized the market was unhinged. Uh, they still bought their own bonds. I mean, the, the monetarist idea that the Fed stood back is a myth. They just they had a gold coverage uh, uh, um, amount that, that legislation meant they had to observe. And so they had to stop printing money at a certain point. And then the market collapsed. Um, so, so the, the, the analogy to, to answer your question is: we still have the same system today, where the Fed doesn't create the bubbles; it's the banks that do it. I mean, think about the housing bubble. The Fed wasn't lending money to houses a crazy amount; the banks were. But the Fed's job is when the thing un, unravels in, in two thousand eight, the Fed runs out and prints the money to bail out mm-hmm. the banks so they can do it again. And that's exactly what happened. The Fed bailed them out; it worked, quote unquote, in that enabled the banks to create more credit. And of course, over the next ten years, we had oodles of credit creation, uh, and, and which we still have today. So the system still hasn't changed much. I've heard folks say something like, in the dot-com bust, the debt was transferred from Wall Street to the banks. In the housing bust, the debt was transferred from the banks to the sovereign level. Is that an oversimplification of what has gone on, or is this is this somewhat of an um, accurate portrayal of the process? Well, I mean... <laughs> The, the, the internet bubble didn't involve a lot of debt. It was mostly equity-based. 
And, and again, it was, it was based on um, lots of different factors, but you have a new technology. It's hard to value. You had Greenspan holding rates much, much too low. And so banks had many, many more reserves than they knew what to do with. You had 401ks, which is a relatively new thing, that when you quit your job, you convert an IRA, all of a sudden you would e-trade account. Now, you couldn't margin that up, but you could buy stocks with it and then use your other mm-hmm. account to margin up the things you're buying in your retirement account. And so it, it was more it was more equity-based than, than, uh, than, for example, housing bubble, which is you, you buy your house uh, using lots of... Uh, you know, the mortgage debt, obviously. So I don't, I don't know that I've described the first episode that way, but certainly the second episode is correct. Um, the, the banks have all this bad debt, uh, and they should have gone under. I mean, they all should have gone under. Um, and, and then let other people pick the pieces up. And again, you know, all, all the idea that uh, the world will stop, the banks collapse, is all nonsense. I mean, the, your house doesn't go away. It wants to build it's there. The bank blows up and the mortgage goes away. Well, so what? Someone else lives in the house. The, that asset is there. So um, it, was, it was designed to preserve the system whereby banks create debt and, and blow bubbles. And then when it blows up, uh, and, and all their friends. Remember, all the, the Fed officials all come from the banks. Their friends are in the banks. It, it's all a, an oligopoly. And so they exist to help each other. And, and, and they did. Now, I mean, they'll shoot each other too. That they're they're ruthless, right? But they they when we give them a chance, they'll take out competitors. But in terms of the system, they they you know they have to keep the system going because that's the source of their wealth mm-hmm. and power. And so, taking it to today, we've got large balance sheet expansion by the Fed, and we have. Inflation, maybe yes or no. There's a there's a debate on that. Everyone yeah. feels like it's perhaps a little more than what the numbers may say. What, in your view, what are we going to be seeing the next few years as this process plays out? Could could the government just inflate its debt away, and the numbers nominally are are growing, but yeah. in real terms? They, they lose their debt. Could, could that just happen over the next 10 years? Or So I, I have a somewhat idiosyncratic view on, on this, and, and that yeah. is I, I just try to distinguish between a credit inflation, which is what the banks do when they give you a mortgage and you go buy a house for a, a more price than the next guy because you've got a mortgage and he doesn't, right? Or you, or you've got a mortgage at, at better rates than he has, so you can outbid the house. So housing prices go up. Uh, um, and then, of course, Housing builders see rising prices, and in a free market, rising prices are supposed to signal scarcity. So they run out and they start buying, building new houses. That creates demand for commodities and workers, all sorts of things. So that, that that's a credit bubble, and in the stock market, heavy assets affects mm-hmm. that. And then and this happened in the 19th century too. And then once you go over capacity and, and cash flows start diminishing, and then people default on their debt, and the whole thing collapses, and you're left with the uh, remnants of the investment and the banks blow up. So that's the cycle of, of, a, of a credit inflation. And you don't need debasement as part of the story. Debasement is something else. Debasement is when the, Fed, the, the government, for whatever reason, prints money to finance its deficits, right? It's spending too much money. It prints our money for current expenditures. Now, uh, in our case, uh, we have two things going on. The Fed prints money to fund uh, transfer payments to people and also to bail out the banks. Right? So, so we have this this credit bubble cycle that's going up and down. We also have this deb- constant debasement that's happening. Mm. And, and the way I look at 2008 was there wasn't a lot of debasement, right? What, the, the Fed gave new reserves to the banks, and the banks took the reserves and went and lent out money again to build new projects. And so, again, you've got masses masses of credit inflation, but not lots of debasement. The money didn't really work into people's consumption patterns, whereas mm. in, the, in the past pandemic era, 
uh, part of what the Fed was doing was financing the government to send checks to people who weren't working. The government first said, you can't work, you're not allowed to be productive, but we're not going to let you consume less because that would be unfair. So we're going to give you the money so you can consume the same. Now, again, you know, Say's law tells you that you cannot consume more than you produce. I mean, that's a pretty obvious statement. And so if people aren't producing and they're consuming the same, something has to give. And, and what's in, in prices is, is, is the answer. And to me, that's why we're seeing uh, food prices go up, for example. Um, whereas stock prices go up and down, lumber prices go up and down, uh, food prices generally don't go up and down. Once in the sense of, of consumer prices, I mean, wheat does, obviously. But once General Foods raises the price of Cheerios, they don't usually drop it you know, six months later. I mean, that's usually a permanent increase because they manage, they're so enormous, they manage their, 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 the, the momentum in those things is so large. Mm-hmm. And so I think those sorts of price increases, which we're seeing coming fast and furious, are here to stay. And that reflects, again, the debasement of the currency rather than the credit bubble that, that is also a feature of, of our economy. So um, a credit bubble and debasing of the currency, how common are these in tandem throughout history? Are, I mean, are they quite common or is it? Well, usually one follows the other, right? I mean, usually you have a, a credit inflation and then when it blows up and it busts and everyone's broke, the state says, hey, let's print money to bail everyone out. I mean, this is so consciously the Keynesian program, right? I mean, that's what, that's what, the, mm-hmm. that's what the Keynes says the, company, the, the country should do. I mean, I think it's crazy. But but that's what they're supposed. They're supposed to like not print money during the during the bubble, right? And and, and raise taxes and 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 get a you know fund for the rainy day, which never happens, of course. But that's the theory. Yeah. And then and then the bus comes. You're supposed to spend money into the economy to, to get it going again. But but all that really happens again is that is that the government loves the bubble, and then when the bus comes, it thinks that that's the 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 abnormal thing, right? The bus is the abnormality, not not the boom. And so they they debase the currency to get the the boom going again and. It, it usually works. I mean, it, it works in the sense that it keeps the system together for a time. But what it does do also do is make the imbalances worse and makes the eventual collapse worse. And, and that's what will happen in, in our time. It's the story of the 20s. You know, they, they printed money three times, and that's why 29 mm-hmm. was the worst depression the country had ever had. Uh, and, and in our case, they've been printing money for you know, 20, 60, 100 years, depending on how you count and, uh, and as you're seeing, all the pathologies that come along with that. And so it's not just the economy that's collapsed, it's the society that's collapsing and, and the, the concentration of wealth and, and, the, and the broken dreams of people who aren't in the asset markets. These, these are all features of credit bubbles through history. And, and we've, we are living in the biggest credit bubble that's ever been. And so these symptoms are, I think, are about as worse as they've ever been. And so I'm not saying it's different this time, but I'm just asking in the context of a globalized monetary system where all the major currencies are debasing, yeah. how, do, how does that impact the, the cycle differently? Or at all? Maybe it doesn't change anything. Yeah, no, it, it influences it because it, it allows it to go on longer. Right? Imagine mm-hmm. if um, the U.S. were doing this and everyone else in the gold standard. Right? What would be happening is uh, people be, would be uh, you know, other countries have much stronger currencies, right? And people will be fleeing, capital will be fleeing the U.S. other places because the interest would be so low. You'd say, I, I, I don't want my capital in the U.S., I want it somewhere else. Because the whole world is on this system, there's nowhere to flee to. And so, and so you don't have inflating economies lose capital where they should because there's nowhere for it to go. Uh, and so, therefore, again, having a central bank that no longer has to worry about its gold position, having a country that no longer has to work up trade imbalances or capital imbalances, um, uh, means it can go longer. This was Jacques Rueff's point in, in, in France, which was that when the U.S. runs a deficit and dollars wind up in Tokyo or Berlin or London, all they can do with it is buy, go buy U.S. securities. 
Because they can't mm-hmm. go to a bank and say, "Here's my, here are my dollars, give me, give me the gold. They can't do that. They can't strip capital out of the banks. So it's certainly gone on longer than ever before. But um, the impacts are no different. And, and we, what, what inflation does eventually is hollow out the industry of, of a nation and, and, and create imbalances and overcapacity and, and, uh, and wealth, uh, huge wealth disparity and, and a lot of you know, dynamics that make the country unstable economically and politically. And again, that's what we're seeing. So, I mean, th- those things are not, are not changed. So yeah, so Hayek had a line in, in 79 or 78 where he said that um, he'd been mistaken about the bubble that had been going on in the 60s and 70s uh, mm-hmm. because he had no idea how long it could go in a central bank no longer tied to a gold standard. But, of course, he said the, the end result would be the same, and, and, and that's, that's true in our case too. I mean, the central banks have never had so much power. Governments, I, I dare say, have never had so much power as they have today. And so therefore, they've been able to keep the system going longer, but it will collapse. And you, I've, I've heard you say before that um, some, something like, and these are your words, so correct me, something like markets will always win over a government or something yes. like that. Like markets will always force their hand. Correct. Which, which I think is a quite interesting way to look at it. And I, I almost bifurcate it into two, into two parts of if you have these unsustainable systems that we've been talking about, yeah. credit growth and debasing of the currency, you can have a fallout due to financial reasons or you can have a destabilizing event due to political or social reasons. And so I just, I just wonder, I have no idea, and I'm no expert to be – you know, pontificating my ideas out here into, but I just wonder if we're able to devalue the global monetary system and it can uh, give so much more longevity and legs to this cycle. Perhaps yeah. it is the pitch for economics that we need to worry about of inflation running hot. And then when I look back at history, the one thing I see that you, you cannot control for um, civil unrest is food. When people can't afford food, and yeah. I know this sounds like doom and gloom right now, but and I'm not saying that necessarily will happen in America, but that's what I worry about is maybe we get to a scenario where we have to uh, we're, we're going to be um, in an uncomfortable situation from a social standpoint. Do you do you bifurcate those two at all, or are you kind of like you know what I think it's it's going to be a financial mechanism that brings us down? Oh no, not not at all. I mean, you have to think about it holistically. I mean, and and to to your earlier point, I mean, you know, when, when the Romans debased a currency to zero, prices of course went to infinity, and they responded with the most comprehensive price controls that the world had seen then, back mm. then, the, the, by Diocletian, and the penalty for for violating was death. Uh, so they were serious penalty about for it. Vi- for violating the price controls was death. Yeah, they, I mean these, these are wow. Romans. They were serious, right? And and, <laughs> yes, and then people stopped going to market because there's no point in selling your stuff if you can't get a fair price for it. So then they made a death mm-hmm. penalty if you withheld your goods from the market. <laughs> so what do you think happened to the productive economy in in, in that scenario? Right, it, it collapsed wow. and the empire collapsed and the and the quote unquote barbarians who by then were probably more civilized uh, uh, took over and and so. To your point, again, I think Rome is a very salient example of this. Uh, food prices start going up in Rome, and what they do, they start subsidizing food to the poor because they didn't want unrest, as you talk mm-hmm. about. And what do we do in this country? We subsidize food to the poor for the exact same reasons, to keep people from getting too upset about the system. Uh, and, and that can go along for a while, but the problem is when you become so top-heavy that uh, you're, you're starting to impinge your productivity and you're taxing everyone at greater and greater rates 
to feed ever more and more poor people who, because of the system, it, it does that, um, the, the desire to be productive goes down. I mean, why on earth would you be productive when the government's going to take everything you, you make? And tax levels in this country are enormously high. You can't just look at local, state, and federal. You have to look at inflation, too. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's... Yeah, people, for example, own a house is going to weigh up, weigh up in value over, over a couple of decades, like my parents, for example. And I'm not sure it's gone up in real terms, but when they sell it, there's a huge capital gains tax. And so, so when you make your money, you've already paid your income tax on it, anywhere you put it is going to be subject to capital gains tax now, which are also going up, uh, and, and the inflation tax. And so, and so it's really, really hard to save your money. It's hard to be productive. There's little point in being productive. Someone's going to take your stuff. That's why Russia doesn't work very well. If you're successful in Russia, some guy shows up in the middle of the night and demands some of your money or Mexico. So what, why on earth would you be innovative and work hard? And, and so as productivity starts to decline, again, it's, it becomes harder and harder to feed ever more poor people who are being crushed by, by the system. And that eventually the, there's a breaking point. And it could be militarily. Uh, which is, was in Rome, right, as it could be in the U.S. I mean, you know, these, America's uh, uh, competitors are making great strides in mil- military technology and ability, and, and we're not. Um, and, uh, and, and there are lots, lots of bad outcomes that, that happen. Mm-hmm. And you, you spent a lot of your time researching gold, uh, which is certainly a escape from that system in a way. And Which is what Alan Greenspan yeah. wrote in the 60s, right? When he was a mm-hmm. protege of, of uh, Ayn Rand, he wrote how gold was, you know, it got you out of that system. Of course, he, he had changed the tune once he was <laughs> the chief central banker. Sorry to interrupt, but I think it's important to know. No, that, no, no. That, that these, these ideas are not sort of, you know, conspiratorial. These are, these are oh, normal no, not ideas from decades ago. And, and so, yeah, I wonder if the global monetary system is devaluing and and there's this Every year, there's a greater pressure that you you want to get all or part or a portion of your wealth out of that system, and yeah. so I'm not sure your views on Bitcoin, but do you see perhaps that might be why there is some flow towards it? Because whether someone believes in the technology or the um, uh, the value of it or not, it is an escape for a time. Do you do you? Do you feel like it's there for a reason as well? And then perhaps talk a bit about your views on gold being escape as well. Gold minus versus, I missed Sorry, uh, gold, gold being an escape as well. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, certainly the thesis behind Bitcoin is solid in the sense that people are gravitating towards private money, which again was private, was John Law's money originally was private. That's why it did so well. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, you know, the, the Chinese had re- recurring bouts of hyperinflation over the centuries. And, and there were some visitors, French visitors to China uh, in the 19th century who were amazed that even though the currency there was not sovereign, it circulated anyway. And they said, no, it circulated because it wasn't sovereign. <laughs> That's why people trusted it. And, and, so, and so the effort behind Bitcoin is, of course, perfectly natural and normal. Now, I, I don't think Bitcoin works uh, for various reasons. I don't think the design is, is sound. I think it won't work out in the end of the day. But certainly for the, for the people who, who advocated from that perspective, they're, they're, their assumptions are right. They're, 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 you know, their conclusions, I think, are incorrect. But their analysis is, is correct. And I, I see, you know, it tends to be younger people, libertarian, 
uh, a philosopher, as an economist, who would gravitate to Bitcoin. And, and all I can say is they didn't live through the internet bubble, perhaps, or the housing bubble. They never recognize that they're in a <laughs> bubble themselves. Uh, it is a new technology. Uh, blockchain probably has a future, uh, but, but I don't think Bitcoin's going to work out. And I can discuss why if you, mm-hmm. if you, if you like. But in terms of alternatives, absolutely. I mean, the, the reason why Roosevelt made holding gold bullion a felony is because, given a chance, people will escape into gold. I mean, I mean look, Diocletian made only gold a capital offense. Robespierre made holding gold. Uh, I think it was, it was nine years in irons. Uh, I mean, you, you look back through the dictators of history, and all of them have banned the ownership of gold and silver precisely because uh, they stand for individual liberty and individual ownership of capital. And that's something that uh, 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 metastatizing states simply cannot allow. And so we're we're getting close to time here, but so a last question is: If that is the trajectory of history, do you see that in our future, near future, here, and perhaps the states or other um, banning gold? Other you mean? of these globalized societies, yeah, banning gold. And if so, what, how do you how do you even think about that? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question, and what's what's interesting about our own situation is that. Uh, but gold was, was a felony to have in this country for 40 years. And the reason why it was decriminalized in the early 70s was because the Keynesian philosophers who were running the system couldn't explain why it was a bad, uh, should be criminal. In other words, if, if they're right, right, if you can design an economy around, around Keynesian and, and uh, terms, why on earth do you have to ban gold? I mean, it was, it was almost a undercut their whole argument that they were right. And so it was re-legalized to basically give them legitimacy. And so the prospect of having the current order ban gold again would be an admission that their whole system doesn't work and it's become just simply an oligarchic statist instrument for extracting wealth and power from everyone else. I mean, now that could happen towards the end of the system, but it certainly won't happen soon because that, that would be an incredible admission to make. Now, they could raise taxes on it and, and deal with other things uh, like that. But I think that comes later in the cycle because, again, it, it's so intellectually divergent with what they think. But let, let me tell you two examples of, of times when gold has been banned in this country. One was, of course, I just mentioned in the 30s. Um, the currency didn't collapse. It worked. They were able to ban gold and silver. And the reason was because um, the Federal Reserve at the time was about 60% backed by gold. There was little, very little federal mm-hmm. debt. And so... Uh, and so, and, and the debt there was, Andrew Mellon had paid it all back, and so it was actually very, very solid debt. By 1940, the Fed was 80% backed by gold. So, so even though you couldn't have it as an individual, the dollar you had in your pocket was mostly gold. And so you really didn't need gold in, in, that, in that environment. That's why they thought the dollar didn't devalue. There was a second time in the U.S. when gold was effectively banned, and that was during the Civil War. Uh, Salmon Chase, after whom Chase Bank is, is named, was, was Lincoln's uh, treasury, sec- uh, uh, treasury Secretary. And he banned the trading of gold, trying to get rid of the system because the greenbacks that the North was printing to fight that war were devaluing. And his theory was if he destabilized gold and banned the trading of it, that would, that would stabilize the greenbacks. Um, but the greenbacks weren't based on anything. I mean, it was a pure fiat currency based by future taxes. And, and so what happened was he banned gold. As gold didn't collapse, the greenbacks collapsed. Because, you know, because gold is free market money against which other things are valued. And two weeks later, the Congress rescinded the, the, the order and the greenback snapped back again. So the point is that huh. um, currency bids on gold. That's what it does. And so uh, and, and not the other way around. And so I think in our context, if the U.S. were to ban 
purchase of gold, the gold wouldn't go down. The dollar would collapse because all of a sudden people couldn't use their dollars to buy gold and therefore they value it much, much less. I think we would follow the, the Civil War analogy and not the FDR analogy because, again, the difference is the Fed was very well backed then and, and, and the Civil War it wasn't. It was no Fed, but the, the greenbacks were not backed by anything. Mm-hmm. So it well, so doesn't really scare me because – it's like, how could we be so lucky? I mean, I in, in, my, in my view, if they ban gold, gold goes up, you know, 5x the next day. Um, the other thing I would mention about the 30s is um, when FDR banned gold, the S&P 500 had declined by 90% and the dividend rate was 10%. Um, so if you show up too, so you hadn't already sold your gold to buy productive assets, he did you a huge favor because that was the trade yeah. to make at that point. And often you see governments doing that. They put in, a, a, you know, I think the oil profits tax went in 1980, right, at the top of the market. Uh, the same thing was happening in 2008, right as commodities were peaking, that Congress was talking about windfall profits taxes. Well, they never get any money because by the time the government gets around to doing that, it's probably towards the end of the show. So, you know, when, when gold at 10000 or 20000 the, the government starts getting worried about it, probably a good time to sell your gold and buy something else. I mean, it depends on conditions, of course, but, <laughs> but that's, that's, that's the way I view it. Gotcha. Awesome. Well, Dan, this has been a wonderful walk through history and your framework and the way you think about markets. Um, where can folks find more of your work if they're interested? Uh, sure. So I have a website, uh, Myrmicon.com. That's M-Y-R-M-I-K-A-N.com. Uh, it has all my letters that I, that I write. Uh, and then hopefully one day I'll finish the book I've been writing that, that has all this. Oh, wonderful. In one, <laughs> in one package. Uh, and then uh, I'm also president of something called the Committee for Monetary Research and Education, uh, which was founded in 1970 by Henry Hazlitt and, and people like that. Joac Rueff was involved and and Jim Grant and Lou Lehrman and, and people of that stature. It's a bit more about it at the moment. Um, it's been a tough time for people in the hard money uh, uh, sphere until recently, but I'm planning to, to revive that organization. And, and we, we, the point of it is to educate the public about, uh, about uh, how sound money and civilization are, are intertwined. Interesting. Yeah, I think it's the perfect time to be looking back in history and learning lessons that we can not only just applies to today, but also how we're framing and looking at our own lives in the future, for sure. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining today. Um, you have a good rest of the day. I really appreciate you coming on. All right. I appreciate the. I always enjoy t- chatting with these things. So thanks so much. And that's a wrap. If you like what we do here, make sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review. It's the best way to help us get our content out to the most people. And that way we can keep doing this every week. So we look forward to seeing you next time. And thanks again.